As Bill mentioned, we are continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, again and again, comes back to this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to spend our, the next several weeks looking at what this kingdom is and what it means for us. We'll find that it's an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that is not what we expect. But before we get into that, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come and we can open your word and we can hear what you have to say to us. Pray that you would use me to be faithful to what you have to say. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us clearly this morning. We commit this time to you and, and to your glory. We love you in your name. Well, during the Christmas season, we covered the Christmas story, the first three chapters of Matthew. And the author of Matthew, Matthew, points out how Jesus is the promised king. He says, hey, look, Jesus fulfills this prophecy, and hey, look, Jesus brings about that prophecy to fulfillment. And these three wise men from the east, they come and they worship Jesus as king. Every detail of Matthew 1 through 3 is meant to point us to Jesus as this coming king that the Old Testament has been talking about. He's saying, he's here. Get ready for what he's about to do. And you can imagine the Jews understand what's going on. They're ecstatic. They, as we saw last week, all go out into the desert to see this guy named John the Baptist who they think has something to do with this coming kingdom. They've been waiting hundreds of years for a king to come and end their subjugation to Rome. And then they see Jesus out in the desert. And Jesus is baptized, anointed by God himself. And the Jews are like, Jesus, you're the king. Tell us what to do. You're the one who's come to deliver us from the Roman Empire. Rome is going to get it. What's the plan, Jesus? How are we going to establish your kingdom? Kingdom that's been promised us in the Old Testament. You're heading to Jerusalem, right, Jesus? That's the city of the kings, the capital. You're going to challenge Rome. You're going to set up your perfect and your just kingdom there, aren't you? Well, let's go, Jesus. And we come to our text this morning. We see that Jesus has a very different idea of what this king, what he has come to do. It says in, in Matthew 4, verse 1, as Bill just read, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What in the world is going on? This is an unexpected why is Jesus purposely going into the desert to make himself vulnerable to sin? That's your, your master plan, Jesus? That's how you're starting your, your coming kingdom? That doesn't make sense. In terms of the expectations that people had of him and of what he was going to do, this is upside down. You can imagine the, the Jews already marching off to Jerusalem, ready to to take back their land 
for Jesus to establish this kingdom, and they're, they're on their way and realize that Jesus isn't, isn't with them. And they turn back, Jesus is headed the other direction, out further into the desert. What is he doing? Where is he going? And I tell you what, Jesus is so different than what we thought our Savior would look like that 2,000 years later, in terms of our expectations of him and what he is about, Jesus is still often upside down to us. Dallas Willard, who is a great Christian theologian, once used an analogy that fits with what we're talking about today. He recounted when a pilot was maneuvering, uh, practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. They turned the controls for what they thought would be a steep ascent upward and flew straight into the ground. They were unaware that they had been flying upside down the whole time. And that's the case for many of us. It's, it's, up, it's us who are upside down, not Jesus, after all. Many of us come here this morning flying at high, high speed, some of us attempting difficult maneuvers, and all the while flying upside down without even knowing. The Jews were upside down, and that resulted in their expecting Jesus to strike some political, military uh, victory against Rome. But Jesus didn't come to them. Our being upside down results in our expecting Jesus to simply give us a few tips on how to be better people. In the case of this passage today, we often expect Jesus to give us techniques and methods on how to resist temptation. But this text is not in the Bible primarily for that reason. Instead, we're going to see this, that Jesus' upside-down faithfulness is what turns us Right side up. That's our big idea this morning. Jesus' upside down faithfulness is what turns us right side up. This morning we're going to explore the story of Jesus' temptation and find out what exactly we mean by upside down faithfulness. And then we're going to draw some conclusions about how his faithfulness turns us right side up. In other words, what does Jesus' faithfulness mean for you and me? That's where we're headed. You also get uh, a number of opportunities to hear me attempt to say that Jesus possesses uh, it. But first, what do we mean by Jesus' upside-down faithfulness? Look with me in chapter 3, Matthew, verse 17. That's really where the story begins. Jesus has just been baptized, and he comes out of the water, and the text reads like this, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. In effect, the father is saying, that's my boy. Jesus has a relationship of love with approval with the Father. What he does, he does with the Father's consent at the Father's bidding. His mission in life is the mission that the Father has given him. He's a faithful son. And 
What's the mission that the Father has given him? He's given him the mission nothing less than our salvation. To live a perfect life, perfect obedience, and to die on the cross, all on behalf of others. This is Jesus' mission. This is what it means for him to be a faithful son. But then we come to Matthew 4. And the faithful son heads out to the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now some of us may think that it's silly to believe in a devil, that the devil belongs in cartoons and in Halloween, but not in reality. And the tech people uh, last service threatened to just leave this image up the entire screen. <laughs> and I understand that, that this kind of image is, is silly to us, but we don't, and we don't want to make a mistake of obsessing over Satan and thinking that he's behind every bush. But I also don't think we want to make the mistake of totally denying Satan's existence and not seeing him behind any bush. I find it interesting that societies like ours that are more well-off in terms of finances and infrastructure and technology, we tend to think that we've moved beyond believing in a personal force of evil, in Satan or demons, and we spend our time making fun of these kinds of things. But those societies that face the, the obvious evils of poverty and oppression and war and genocide and all that comes with that, those cultures that have rubbed shoulders with evil in ways that we often have, they tend to think that evil is personal. That there is something behind these terrible realities. And that something is not a man dressed in red with horns on his head and a pitchfork in his hand. No one is saying that that cartoon character is real. What scripture and what we want to say is that an intelligent and personal force is often, not always, but often, behind the evil that we see in the world, behind the temptation that you and I face. Now, when I've read this text in the past, Matthew 4, I've always read it and tried to glean from it how to resist temptation. And that's a, a good thing. Don't not do that. Please do that. We can always be learning from Jesus' example. But when we come to the temptations that Satan actually tempts Jesus with, we notice that they're kind of odd. The devil tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread, for example. That's not something that I'm worried about being tempted with anytime soon. And it's the same with the other two temptations. They're just not something that I can relate to. And I think that's not because they're just weird temptations. I think it's because there's something bigger going on here. Something that has fundamental relevance for you and for me. And I want to find out what that something is as we go through this story. So let's look at verse 2. It says, as, as Bill read, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
first blush, I have to ask the question, why would it be wrong for Jesus to turn stones into bread? That seems like an okay thing to do. It doesn't seem sinful. What is the temptation here? I think the key is how Satan introduces his question, or his suggestion. He says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Satan is, is not casting doubt here on whether Jesus is the Son of God. They, they both know that Jesus is the Son of God. But he's suggesting that since he is indeed God's beloved Son, then he shouldn't be starving. If, Jesus, you have the power to satisfy yourself, why are you wearing yourself out? Jesus, who after 40 days in harsh conditions with no shelter and no food, is probably hungrier than you or I probably will ever be. He, you can imagine, looks back at Satan, his mouth watering, his whole body trembling with Weakness, his mind hazy because of lack of nutrition. Doesn't have the energy to think of much except his desire for food. But as much as he wants to go along with this seemingly harmless suggestion, he knows what Satan is trying to do. He knows that this temptation isn't just about bread. Satan is trying to get Jesus to use his sonship, his close relationship with the Father in a way that we would call right side up. It makes sense to us that Jesus would use his power as God's Son to feed himself when he's hungry. But Jesus is upside down, at least to our vantage point. He refuses. And he responds quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Now why would he quote Deuteronomy? This passage that he quotes does happen to apply to his situation. This passage applies in that Jesus recognizes he doesn't need to use his own power to provide for himself. The Father will provide. He doesn't need to take matters into his own hands and seek after his own desires. God already has his best interests in mind. He can trust God. His power as God's Son is not meant for him to use for his own satisfaction, but for the salvation of others. That's his mission. And Satan is tempting him away from this thinking. But there is another larger reason that quotes do And it's this. Israel goes through the same experience that he's going through. Israel, after God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. Does that sound familiar? Jesus wanders in the desert for 40 years, and Israel wanders in the desert, or excuse me, for 40 days, and Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years. That's, that's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that Jesus points back to Israel's experience. They both face the same testing and temptation. This is not a coincidence. Jesus is self-aware when he quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes it and in effect says to the devil, where Israel failed, when they didn't trust God for bread in the wilderness, I succeed. Unlike Israel, I'm trusting in God and I refuse to use my power in a way that is self-serving. Where Israel failed, Jesus 
succeeds. When humans fell to temptation, Jesus overcomes temptation. I was the oldest of four kids growing up, one younger brother, and, and growing up, the firstborn experiences everything first, including the bad. And especially when we're talking about the bad, the oldest, when they get into trouble, they sort of find out what the consequences are for everyone else to know. When the oldest says a bad word that uh, hasn't been used in the house before and mom gets angry, the younger siblings take out their younger sibling notepads and write down to not see When the oldest stays out a few hours past curfew and gets grounded for a couple weeks, the siblings that are younger, again, note to self, don't do that. In this way, where one sibling fails, the other succeeds. At least that's how I've heard that it works in, in other families. But the, the point is, where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. And, and this isn't just a point of interest for us, this is significant. But hold that thought. For, for now, round one, this temptation, this battle between Jesus and Satan, round one goes to Jesus. We're going to run through the rest of the story more quickly, but round two begins with the devil hitting Jesus with an uppercut, a, quick, a scripture quote of his own. Verse 5 says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And this could mean that they either went physically to the temple or the devil gave him some sort of a vision. And the devil said to him, If, if you are the Son of God, there it is again, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, this is something that I'm really not worried about being tempted with. How can it be tempting for Jesus to throw Himself down from the temple to be caught by God? That's just me. Well, Satan quotes Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is about a person that God truly loves. And it says that the one God truly loves, if he throws, or if he falls down, God will catch him. Satan is tempting Jesus to act out this psalm. If you are the beloved Son of God, Jesus, if you are the one who Psalm 91 is referring to, God would surely save you. You threw yourself down. You'll be vindicated as God's faithful son whom he loves. You'll get to experience the protection and care of the Father instead of further hunger and testing out here in the wilderness with me. Just throw yourself down. But Jesus responds again with a quote from Deuteronomy saying that he would not test God. He would not force God to prove his love for him. Again, he succeeds where Israel failed. Deuteronomy tells us that Israel tested God during their time in the wilderness. They demanded for God to prove that he was going to provide for him. They did not trust him. Israel failed, but again, Jesus wins. Round two also goes to the faithful son. 
Satan decides that this isn't going the way that he hoped it would go, so he brings out his big guns, decides to make Jesus an offer that he can't refuse. He takes Jesus to an impossibly high mountain, meaning this is probably a vision of some sort, and he points out all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all you have to do, Jesus, is bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all of this. Imagine if the kingdoms of the world, the ownership of them, were transferred from Satan to Jesus. This, this is a good thing that Satan is offering. Jesus, as Son of God, after all, is entitled to all the kingdoms of the world. The devil is not offering him something he can't have, or shouldn't have, or even, even won't have. This is a good thing that the devil is offering. It's seemingly upside down that Jesus rejects this law. But the problem is, is this. Jesus, as the faithful Son of God, has a mission from the Father, and it goes through the cross. Only after dying on the cross is Jesus promised authority over all the kingdoms of the world. Satan is offering the shortcut. He's offering the reward without the pain, the crown, without the cross. My, my personal favorite band is U2. And, and this, uh, in their song, uh, Vertigo, paraphrases this temptation wall with the lyrics. All of this, all of this can be yours. Just give me what I want, and no one gets hurt. That song is based off this passage, by the way, so you can go listen to it. But Jesus responds with one last quote from the book of Deuteronomy, this time saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. In other words, he says, It doesn't matter, Satan, that what you are offering me is, is good. I'm not going to be unfaithful. To the Father. I will not worship you. Only God is to be worshipped. And this temptation, if you read any of the Old Testament, Israel fails at royally again and again. And they mess up over and over. They're worshiping idols here, worshiping gods there. Israel fails big time. But Jesus succeeds. Jesus is the faithful Son of God, and again, he quotes Deuteronomy to point this back out. That where Israel succeeds, he wins. And Satan leaves, finally, defeated. Jesus has won the battle with him in the three-round knockout. Jesus was faithful, but what does that mean for us? We said earlier that Jesus' faithfulness is what turns us right side up. How exactly does that happen? Well, the key to answering those questions is, is this. Jesus' perfect life, not just his death, secures our salvation. Thankfully, this is an imaginary scenario. I was having a good year this year. But imagine if Kansas City Chiefs went 0-16. We're having a, a good year, but just humor me. They, they lose every game that they play. They're the worst team in the league. Then the playoffs begin. All these good teams with winning records during the regular season play each other.
So only two teams remain. They start getting ready for the Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday dawns, and everyone's excited to see these two best teams of the year go head-to-head. And, and then the, the Chiefs show up at the, at the stadium, expecting to play. Is anyone going to see them as legitimate? Is anyone going to let them play? Well, no. They, they didn't earn their way there. You have to win to make it to the main event. And in the same way, Jesus couldn't just show up at the cross to secure our salvation, to die for the forgiveness of our sins. He had to win to get there. The regular season matters. He had to live a perfect life in order to be a sufficient sacrifice for you and me. If he had not won this battle with Satan, and if at the end of his life he had just waltzed up to the cross and asked to be killed on behalf of our sin, it would have been illegitimate. He would have just been another dead guy. Because he would have deserved to die. But he was perfect. He resisted temptation. He didn't deserve to die until his death counts for you and for me. And not only that, and this is the, the crazy thing, but his, his perfect life, his resistance of temptation, it counts for you and for me too. His perfect life, his resistance of temptation, counts. Not only are our sins forgiven by his death, but we are made righteous by his life. Another way of saying this is, not only is my debt of sin forgiven, but my account is credited with the righteousness of Christ. I am not just forgiven debt starting at zero. I am a rich man. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, and Jesus succeeds where I failed. And his success, his perfect life, accounts for me. How does this matter for practical life, though? Well, it changes everything, but let's talk about resisting temptation specifically. When I face temptation to sin, my mindset as a Christian is not that, well, God has forgiven me and I should be thankful for that. And now I need to resist temptation so that I can be righteous. So that God will be pleased with me. Instead, my mindset when I face temptation is that God has forgiven me because of Jesus and he's already made me righteous because of Jesus. I don't have to earn my way to righteousness. I can't. I don't have to earn the Father's approval. The Father's statement about Jesus that we read after his baptism is it's, it's his statement about me as well. This is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. I am God's beloved in Christ. And out of that knowledge of God's love and acceptance of me, I am able to resist temptation because there's no pressure on me to earn anything. I'm, I'm called to obey, but I can't earn righteousness. Jesus has already earned everything for me. That's why he says it is finished on the cross. 
His seemingly upside-down faithfulness has turned me right side up. I obey, I resist temptation not out of guilt, not out of a sense of legalism, but out of gratitude. Think of, of one thing that you're tempted with regularly. One, one sin that you struggle with regularly, maybe lust, maybe deception, maybe materialism, whatever it is. The way to overcome that, that sin, that temptation, is not to beat yourself up every time that you fail. And to try harder the next time. But it's to look at Christ and His perfection, to meditate on the fact that Christ's faithfulness counts as your faithfulness. As you place your faith and trust in Him. Jesus succeeds where you and I fail. Love Him, admire Him, thank Him, and in grateful response to His forgiveness of your sins and His gracious gift of righteousness, seek to obey Him. Seek to please Him. Now don't hear me say that that's, that's it for resisting temptation. If you deal with an addiction, for example, there's support groups to join and accountability to, to find. There are steps that we have to take. But at the deepest level, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is our righteousness, and we can't, we don't have to earn it ourselves, that frees us, and that's what changes us. It's what we meditate on day by day. It's what propels our spiritual maturity, our sanctification. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, then the story means that Jesus is not interested in you seeing him just as a good moral teacher. He didn't come to just be a, a, a moral teacher. He came to be your Savior. He came to live the perfect life that you and I can't live and die on the cross for our sins that we can be forgiven only when we place our faith and trust in Him do His teachings truly change us at the heart. Only His faithfulness turns us right side up and allows us to understand and follow His teachings aright. And if you're a Christian and are in sin, if you're living a lifestyle of disobedience, know that nothing makes sin just okay the, the gospel does not give us a pass to do whatever we like. Yes, God is gracious beyond measure. Yes, Jesus forgives you and gives you his righteousness as you trust him and follow him. But he does so as you trust him and follow him. God's grace is a free gift, but you do have to receive the gift. If you have a sinful habit and aren't turning from it, if you don't want to, that's a sign that you're, you're spurning God's gracious gift. Turn from that sin and receive God's free gift. My mom and, and dad were, were loving and, and demanding parents. They, they expected us to get good grades, to behave ourselves, to do our chores without grumbling. If we failed their expectations, there, there would be consequences. It wasn't just acceptable to do whatever we wanted, but we always knew that they, they loved us. There was, there was never a question 
about that. We never felt like we had to somehow earn their love or earn the right to be their children. We knew we were their sons and daughters. And we wanted to please them because they loved us, not so they would love us. And I know many of us do not have the, the relationship with our parents or the relationship with our kids that we would desire. And my relationship with my family is, is far from perfect. But God wants to be your perfect father. And he wants you to be his beloved son or daughter. And whether you're a Christian or not, you don't have to earn that. You can't earn that. But Jesus, with his seemingly upside-down faithfulness, has earned it for us. It is he who turns us right side up. Trust in him and his success, his perfection. Worship him. Set your eyes on him, on the road to overcoming temptation. That's the start. An unexpected start. Let's pray.